celebrated, kind of what we kicked off the celebration a, a few weeks ago. Easter has changed everything, but maybe a better way of putting it would be Easter, the resurrection, restores everything. This is God's way of restoring humanity into the image that He had for it in the beginning, and a part of that was justice. But uh, it's not just justice. We're going to dig into both justice and mercy, mostly mercy, but they overlap a lot throughout Scripture, so uh, there will be some overlap. But, but I want us to, if we can, approach the idea of mercy and justice from the perspective of Easter, from what God did for us through Christ on the cross as well as through the power uh, of, of Jesus and, and God over death, hell, and the grave through the resurrection and the ascension and the sending of the Holy Spirit empowering us to live this life. Let's approach this topic from the perspective of Easter and the resurrection and see what we can receive from it. But because... We talk about living a life because, we want to live our lives because of God's love, because we have received God's free gift of righteousness, like we talked about there in the video. We've received this as a free gift because, like we talked about last week, we have been vindicated by Christ. We have a defender who is fighting and pleading our case because we are also now forgiven through Jesus Christ. We need to have a perspective shift. We need to have a paradigm shift, so to speak. We need to stop seeing things one way and start seeing them in the biblical way. And that's what we're going to spend a lot of time focusing on this morning, that it's no longer about me, my wants, my preferences, my idea of how things should be. In fact, as we study in Scripture, it's not about me at all. It's not about blame shifting, which is a lot of our approach in our culture today. When, when something goes wrong in my life, we tend to shift the blame onto other people. We don't want to accept our personal responsibility. We want to, sh to shift the blame. It's not about how others are treating me and me always being a victim and subject to the treatment of others. It's not about what I get or what I don't get. Those are all perspectives based on me first mentality. But we need a new perspective that leads us then to see people differently. I was going to spend a lot of time on this. I'm going to just kind of abbreviate uh, what I was going to talk about this morning on this particular topic uh, because I want to make sure we cover the other things. Um, I think part of, part of what we talked about last week and a part of the problem is we've become judge and jury to culture, that, that we have decided who's right and who's wrong. You can see this in Matthew chapter 7 verse 1 through 6, how God wants us to think about it, not the way the world is thinking about it. Jesus says, do not judge so that you will not be judged, for by the standard that you judge, you will be judged, and by the measure you use, you will measure and receive. Why do you see the speck in your brother's eye, but fail to see the beam of wood in your own? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye while there is a beam in your own? You hypocrite. First, remove the beam from your own eye, and then you can see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. And I think this, this idea of judging in this way has kind of created this tendency in us to, to look at the problems of the people who are, you know, downcast and downtrodden and worry from, worried from life, weary from life, and to see that and to make a judgment, to make a snap judgment, to make a quick rash judgment and decide that we don't need to help or that they're not deserving of our help. But this is not the biblical way. We are not to judge. There's a lot to it. I can't get into all of it, so we're going to spend an entire sermon on this or an entire teaching some other time to really understand what the Bible teaches about judgment. But as a general rule, and Jim shared this with me this week, said if it's, if it's not your job to judge, don't judge. If it's not your job to judge, don't judge. Whose job is it to judge? Well, God has appointed some in our society to be judges, but ultimately the responsibility falls on God. He is the one who has the final say on things. The Bible does tell us if your brother or sister has sinned against you, then it's our responsibility to go to them and resolve that. Some of us have been given a position in the church where we have to do a, a, a form of 
judgment as like elders or spiritual leaders because we are responsible for the people that we lead, and we're going to have to give an account before God on how we have led, and so we have a responsibility there. So, so there is that. But if it's not your job to judge, don't judge. But the Bible makes this point very, very clear. We've made it here in the past, but we haven't made it in a while, so I want to make it clear right now. When it comes to those outside the faith, when it comes to those who don't believe in God, when it comes to those who have not yet put their faith in Jesus Christ, there is absolutely no place for judgment from us, God's followers. That's for God alone. That comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 5, if you want to go look that up. Paul says, For what do I have to do with judging those outside? Are you not to judge those inside, but God will judge those outside? It's God's and God's alone to judge those who are outside the faith. We don't do that. We just see them with God's eyes, which is what we're going to talk about this morning. We're going to talk about loving mercy, and specifically from Luke chapter 10, we're going to look at the story of the Good Samaritan. I was going to use this last week to illustrate justice because it does that too, but it's more of a mercy and a compassion story than it is a justice story. We'll see elements of justice, but mostly mercy. But before we get into that in Luke chapter 10, I want to define mercy. Mercy is goodness, kindness, and faithfulness is how it's used and translated throughout the Bible. The idea to love mercy means to have mercy or to be compassionate. If you love mercy, it means that you are a compassionate person. And compassion then means it's not just kindness. That is one of the terms that is used in Scripture is kindness, God's loving kindness or God's loving compassion, but it also it means to walk with someone in their pain. And you might want to write that down to have a good biblical understanding of what compassion is. It means to walk with someone in their pain. I want to talk a bit about the word love. We're supposed to love mercy. We're not supposed to just do merciful acts because it's a duty. But for those of us in Christ, we're supposed to love mercy. And as we're going to see, this idea of loving mercy actually makes it and takes it from a mental exercise to a matter of the heart. It's not just a matter of the mind and getting the mind to get the body to will and to do these things, but it becomes a matter of the heart where we, from our hearts, want to be compassionate people. So to love mercy is to, from the heart, have mercy and walk with people in their pain. To love mercy is to, from our hearts, have mercy and walk with people in their pain. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. Let's go there and let's read this story. We'll do our best to bring it to life today. Now an expert in the religious law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? How do you understand it? This is, by the way, one of, one of the great things about Jesus. A lot of rabbis did this, but Jesus does it excellently, perfectly, is when he receives a question, he responds with a question. And we've talked about that in the past, that, that what we, one of the things that we need to do when it comes to living out our faith is, is not to just share, not to just kind of in a verbal way share what we think or what we've learned about God's Word, but, but we also need to be doing the active work of helping the people we're talking and sharing with, re- revealing to us and themselves in the process their assumptions, their beliefs, their underlying thoughts about a topic, which is what Jesus does here. Jesus said to him, what is written in the law? How do you understand it? And the expert answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But the expert Wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, And 
who is my neighbor? You can kind of get the feeling, right? So you go, oh, okay. I answered the, the first question right, so, so now let me make myself sound really smart. I'm supposed to love God with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my strength, with all my mind. I'm supposed to love my neighbor as myself. So, Jesus, who exactly is my neighbor? And I love this. Jesus doesn't answer the question with an answer. He answers it with a parable. Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers who stripped him, beat him up, and went off, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road. But when he saw the injured man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came up to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, who was traveling, came to where the injured man was, and when he saw him, he felt, he felt compassion for him. He went up to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day, he took out, that means he spent the night with this guy, caring for this guy overnight. The next day, he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, take care of him, and whatever else you spend, I will repay you when I come back this way. Now Jesus asks another question. Which of these three do you think became a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the religious law said, the one who showed mercy to him. So Jesus said to him, go and do the same. I've really been digging into this passage for a couple of weeks now, and there really is so much in here that I'm just not going to have time to share it all with you. So maybe someday down the road we'll come back and we'll cover the parts that I have to leave out. But I'm going to do my best to get to the, to the stuff that's relevant to what we're talking about today. I want to go back to the very beginning, and I want to start from the very beginning because I think it sets the stage for not only the story, but for us as we set our minds to receive what God has for us. Go back to the beginning. Now, an, etch, an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus, and then in verse 29 it says, but the expert wanting to justify himself said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? The lawyer sought to justify himself. That was his approach in coming to Jesus. He was trying to justify his own beliefs and his own understanding. He wanted to justify himself. He was not genuinely seeking to be taught by Jesus, just wanting to prove his own knowledge. This changes everything for us as followers of Jesus Christ. What is our approach to Jesus? Are we coming to Jesus simply to try to prove ourselves or our own worth or our own understanding or our own knowledge, or are we coming to Jesus for the right reasons? Are we right now in this moment, because we believe that in this moment as we gather together, the presence of God is here because we're gathered in his name. That means the spirit of God is here in our midst and that the spirit wants to cut straight to the heart of some of these things that we believe in our hearts. And when the Holy Spirit does that, are we letting him do that, or are we defending our stance? Are you genuinely seeking to be taught by Jesus, or do you want to prove your own knowledge? Hopefully, we're in the category of genuinely seeking to be taught by Jesus. But I will say, if you're in the category of wanting to prove your own knowledge, that there is grace in this room. I'm not going to ask you to stand up and leave. I'm not going to ask you to get up and walk out. I just want you to see God's grace and his mercy and his love for you, that even when we are standing against Jesus, he offers us his grace. What are our intentions right now in this moment? Psalm 139, verse 23 and 24 says, Search me, God, and know my heart. 
Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. This is a, a, a prayer that I pray for us as a church all of the time. I pray it for myself all of the time. I pray for God to search me and know my heart, to, to know my thoughts, to see if there's any offensive way in me and then fix it and lead me in the way everlasting, the, the way of eternal life. Lead me how you want me to go. Is this our approach to God this morning? Are we asking God to search us or are we asking God to take our side. Or maybe, maybe you, you're, you're, you're trying to prove that you know more than maybe the people that you're sitting around. Don't look at them. Maybe you want to prove that you're you know, more spiritual than the people that you came with or maybe more spiritual than me or some of the others that have been here for a while. You, know, you just want to kind of prove, you know, what is our motive when we come to God? There's a lot that's been made about this story to try to gain an understanding of the gravity of what Jesus is teaching. To get an understanding, I think we need to do a little bit of historical and geographical context. We need to get a little bit of a picture. So look, let's go to the parable and let's talk about the parable because we can understand some things by looking at the specifics of it. Jesus starts and he says, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Down is an accurate term because Jerusalem is up at about 2,500 feet in elevation and Jericho is down about 800 feet below sea level. So to go from Jerusalem to Jericho, you have to go down about 3,200 feet in elevation. You had to go down. Now, there is a priest that is going down this road. He's walking down from Jerusalem down towards Jericho. He's walking away from Jerusalem down towards Jericho. Not up. This is important because if he was walking up towards Jerusalem and in the direction of to Jerusalem, then it would be clear probably why he had to do what he did. Because if he's going up, he's probably going up to Jerusalem to perform his priestly duties. And if you're going up to perform your priestly duties, you had to stay clean. And one of the, the laws is that you, you couldn't touch a dead body. And maybe you could, you could justify in your mind, maybe, maybe he saw this guy that was half dead and he was concerned that he might die in his care and then he would have touched a dead body and then he would be unclean for seven days, which is what the Bible teaches. And then if he's unclean for seven days, he can't go to the temple and do his, his duty as a priest. And so he's inconveniencing a whole bunch of people. So he decides to step around. But, but that's not what the Bible is teaching. That's not what the story is. He's actually going down away from Jerusalem toward Jericho. Now, I suppose you could rationalize, okay, maybe it's seven days. So it's, it's an 18-mile trip from, from Jerusalem down to Jericho, so probably a two-day walking trip. So he could walk for two days and, and go down, and maybe, you know, maybe, maybe his turn to serve in the temple was coming up, and, and he went up there a week or two early, and he realized he forgot something at home, and so he had to walk back down and, and come back up so he couldn't be. But we're kind of dying the death of a thousand qualifications here. That's probably not what's going on. But now we look in the story and we look at the Levite, verse 32. So to a Levite, when he came up to the place and saw him, it might mean that he's coming up from Jericho to Jerusalem or just when he came upon the man. But the law was the same for him. If he touched a dead body, and maybe he looks like he's half dead, so he's got to rationalize that. So, so if he touches a dead body, he's unclean for seven days. And, and the Levites were the lay people of the temple. They had to go to the temple and serve. They, they could not be priests, but they served in lay capacities in the temple. And if he was unclean, then that would mean somebody else would have to pick up his slack and he would be inconveniencing others. In fact, many of the religious experts of Jesus' day were Levites. I can't say this for certain from this story, but if that is in fact the case, then maybe the guy asking the question is a Levite, and Jesus puts a Levite into the story. But so we say, so, so, so the law says you can't be, you know, you can't touch a dead body or you're going to be unclean for seven days. 
But there's another, there is another principle that I, was, that I uncovered while I was studying this week that uh, we're going to put up on the screen for you. You can learn a little bit of Hebrew this morning. It's pekuach nefesh. Everybody say that. Pekuach nefesh. Let's try it again so you get real confident in it. Pekuach nefesh. Yeah, you got to get the ch there at the end. Pekuach nefesh. And this is the obligation to treat human life as sacred. That's what this principle means, that both the priest and the Levite would know this as an overriding, overarching principle to everything. So what that means, what it says, is that if life is at stake, you can break every command in the Torah to save that life. For instance, you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. You're supposed to rest on the Sabbath. But if a wall falls down and traps someone underneath the rubble, you're supposed to get to work and save the life. You're supposed to fast on Yom Kippur, but someone, if someone is sick or starving and their life is in danger, and the only food you have around is pork or a big greasy cheeseburger with bacon on it, if that's the only food you have, you are commanded to give it to them so that they can live because pekuach nefesh, life is sacred. We're supposed to treat life as sacred above everything else. There is no law that keeps us from treating life as sacred. It's more important than any ritual commandment in the Bible. So both of these men, both the priest and the Levite, having known this, should have known exactly how to respond, and yet they didn't. If anyone, if anyone by their example should have known, should have done the right thing, it should have been the priests and the Levites. These are the people most revered in their community. They should have been the ones that did the right thing, and yet they didn't. But a Samaritan, a.k.a. Osama bin Laden, a.k.a. Vladimir Putin, a.k.a. Joseph Stalin, a.k.a. the villain. To the Levite listening to the story, the Samaritan would have been the villain. To the Jews listening to this, the, the Samaritans were villains. They were bad people. As far as the Jews were concerned, the Samaritans were half-breeds, both physically and spiritually. The Samaritans did a huge disservice to God by building their own temple when the only true temple was in Jerusalem. And by having their own temple with their own priests, they did a major disservice to the priests and the Levites. So Jews would never help a Samaritan and Samaritans would never help a Jew. And because of this, because of the disservice these Samaritans did to God, the Jews believed that they were justified and treating the Samaritans in this way. But who is the hero in Jesus' story? The hero is not the priest. The hero is not the Levite. The hero is not those who have been acclaimed by modern society in Jerusalem as the elite. The hero is the Samaritan. By doing this, by taking this approach, Jesus, in this one instance, confronted everything that was of utmost importance to this questioner. By making the Samaritan the hero, Jesus didn't just confront the religion, but he also confronted the patriotism of the listener. We cannot, with our religion or our patriotism, refuse to be merciful or just. We cannot allow our own personal bias to keep us from doing what is right, even if it is the Samaritan, even if it was Hitler himself. God will judge him. Our job is to be merciful. 
This should, by the way, show us that when Jesus is teaching us, he wants to get to the heart. Jesus wants to get straight to the heart of those things in our hearts that are keeping us from a true relationship with him. When it comes to God, there is nothing in our hearts that is off limits. And there cannot be anything in our hearts, our souls, our minds, or our strength that God does not have control of. This is the context that has been set for us here in this story that Jesus is sharing. That, that Jesus wants to get right to the heart of what is leading us to think and act the way that we are. So what is in our hearts this morning? What is in our heart that is causing us to think and to act the way that we are? Is there something in our heart, whether it's religion or patriotism or something else, that has taken the place of God in our hearts that is keeping us from living out our faith in the way we've been commanded? Jesus wants to get to the heart of that in each and every one of us. Let's go back to the beginning one more time. I want to look at something. Verse 25, now an expert in religious law stood up to test Jesus, saying, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to them, What is written in the law? How do you understand it? The expert answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus answered to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. Not think this, not agree with this, but do this and you will live. Do what? What are we supposed to do so that we might have, we might inherit eternal life? We are supposed to love God with all of our heart. That is, our motives, our emotions, our emotions, our will, the deepest held convictions we have in our life, and our affections. Those things that come from our hearts, our, our motives and our emotions, our, our affections, those things that we love, our will, our, our deepest held convictions, that's where we're supposed to love God. That's where, where the love of God is supposed to be seated in our lives. We're supposed to love God with all of our soul. This is the immaterial part of us that makes us who we are, right? We're, we're, not, we're not bodies with a soul. We are souls with bodies that that this is the immaterial part of who we are. We're supposed to love God there. That We're supposed to love God with all of our mind. Sure, we are supposed to love God with all of our mind. That is true. Our rational, our logical, our reasonable thoughts. And we're also supposed to love God with all of our strengths. That is, our abilities, our power, our God-given abilities, our lives as we live them out in our flesh are supposed to be loving God do this and you will live. Not just memorize the verse and put it on a mug and call it good, but do this and you will live. And love your neighbor as yourself. Not just, not just quote that verse as you have the opportunity, but, but to actually live this out in our day-to-day -day lives. This is what we've been given to do. By the way, if we love God this way with all of our heart, our soul, our mind, and strength, then the natural byproduct will be loving our neighbors as ourselves. Because we understand that we have received through Christ, through this amazing gift of God's righteousness and, and the crucifixion and the resurrection, that we have received this as a gift. So it is not in our own might, in our own power, in our own strength that we have done this, but it is because we've received it. And so I want to give it to as many as I can. But the priests and the Levite didn't do that in this story, did they? They loved themselves first. There's even a, a, a phrase that, you know, in Pharisees where uh, they, would, they, would not, they would not come close to a dead body. In fact, they would walk so far around it that not even their shadow would touch the dead body. So you can imagine that might be why they walked all the way around to the other side to go around the guy that had been beaten and robbed. You see, I, I think what has happened in this story is that they came upon a situation and they judged the situation based on how it was going to affect them. 
right? They judged the situation based on how it was going to affect them. No matter, no matter what the reason was, because we don't know the reason, so therefore we must determine that the reason is not all that important. All we know is how they responded, and so we see that they, they judged the situation based on how it was going to affect them, and they moved on. But the Samaritan did what was right. He loved his neighbor. Verse 33, but a Samaritan who was traveling came to where the injured man was, and when he saw him, he felt compassion for him. He went up to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring oil and wine on them. Then he put him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day, he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever else you spend, I will repay you when I come back this way. The Samaritan, when he saw the man, he felt compassion. That means he was stirred in his heart to feel compassion and kindness for this man. It wasn't just an intellectual observation that he saw the man needed help. He felt compassion in his heart. When was the last time we felt compassion for someone when we saw the pain they were in? When was the last time you felt compassion for anyone walking through a struggle? He felt compassion. He went up to him and bandaged his wounds. This means he got blood on his hands. They didn't have surgical gloves back in the day, right? And if it, even if they did, he probably wouldn't have been carrying them with him. He, he got blood on his hands as he wrapped this guy's wounds. He poured out his own oil and wine on the wounds. It cost him. He put this man, this wounded man, on his own animal, which meant that he had to walk the rest of the way to the inn and lead the animal. It inconvenienced him. He brought the man to an inn and took care of the man overnight in the inn. The Samaritan, then he paid the innkeeper two silver coins, two denarii, two days' wages to care for the man while he was gone. What are you making a day? Would you be willing to pay that to care for somebody who was in pain? And he didn't stop there. He, he said, whatever, whatever else you spend, I'll be back and I'll, I'll, I'll make up the difference. Take care of this guy while, I, while I'm gone, while I go and do my business. And when I come back, I'll make up the difference. It's, it's a whatever-the-cost approach. Whatever the cost to make sure that this man gets well, that this man recovers, take care of it and I will come back and I will make it right with you. That's what compassion looks like. See, the lawyer wasn't only coming at it from the wrong stance, he was actually asking the wrong question. The question should not have been, who is my neighbor? That is a justification to get out of helping people, right? Who is my neighbor? And certainly the, the Samaritans or the people in this situation, they're not my neighbor. I don't have to help them. But that's not the right question. In fact, Jesus leads us to the right question. The right question should be, how can I be a good neighbor? It's not who is my neighbor, who are the ones I'm required to help, it is how can I be a good neighbor. This is where Jesus is getting at when he's talking about who proved by their actions that they were a good neighbor. Who in the story proved by their actions that they were a good neighbor, not just in their mind and their thinking, but in the way that they acted and reacted to the situation. Who proved they were a good neighbor? Why was it the Samaritan? Well, it's because... The Samaritan felt compassion for the man that was hurt, that needed help, that needed assistance. And because he felt compassion in his heart, that led him to respond with his whole being. 
His hands immediately went to work, right? He immediately got to work bandaging up the wounds. He immediately got his mind to work devising and coming up with a plan of how he's going to care for this guy in his pain. The essence, the entire essence of this man became consumed with compassion for his neighbor. This is whatever the cost looks like. This is a whatever the cost approach. But could it be that this might not be our approach, that maybe we have the approach of the priests and the Levites where we tend to judge everything in our lives from the perspective of how it's going to affect us? That should be in your notes. That also should be up on the screen for you, hopefully. But we need to stop judging everything in our lives from the perspective of how it's going to affect us. Someone just texted in, texted in that the lawyer is acting from his mind. He's thinking, right? He's thinking about how it's going to affect him. But we do this on a day-by-day basis, don't we? We stop to judge everything and we look at how it's going to affect me personally before we're going to move on, right? We judge everything in our lives and we look at it from the perspective of how it's going to affect me. You can see that in the story, that the priest had that approach. He looked at how it was going to affect him. The Levite had the same approach. How is this going to affect me? But the Samaritan looked beyond the man's current condition and saw his value. The Samaritan looked beyond the man's current condition, his current state, and saw his value. So he stopped and he helped. He gave of his own resources. He sacrificed his own convenience. He gave up his own time. And he walked with the man in his pain. This, by the way, is exactly how God is with us. God did not allow our current condition to determine our future position with him. God did not look at our current condition and see what our state was and decide whether or not to send his son, Jesus Christ. He moved based on how he saw our future position in him. What if? What if God had only looked at our current condition? What if that's all he looked at? What if, what if God just looked at us and decided, that's going to cost too much? The cost is too high. I, I cannot fix this. It's just too much. I mean, look at the price he had to pay, right? I mean, he had to pay the life of his one and only son. I think most of us would agree if that was what was asked of us to to show compassion, to walk with someone in their pain, we would say, cost is too high. Can't do it. Can't do it. But God didn't. God didn't look at our current condition and make the assessment. He he didn't look at our current condition. He saw our future position with him. He he looked at our current condition, where we were, and he saw and had compassion for us. You can see this all throughout Scripture, from the Old Testament through the New Testament. You can see that God looks on us in our current state, and he has compassion for us, and he wants to lead us out of the bondage we're in and set us free to new life in him. He wants us to have this gift that he's so willing to pay for with his own son. Look at Exodus chapter 34, verse 6. It says, And he, that's God, passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children for for their children, for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. God will be a just God in the end, but he is gracious and compassionate and abounding in love and slow to get angry. Psalm 145, verse 8 and 9 says, makes a summary of the same idea, that the Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and rich in love. The Lord is good to all. He has compassion on all he has made. And God not only felt compassion for us, but he acted on compassion, right? I mean, he, he was moved to compassion. In Ephesians chapter 2, we, we get a summary of how God, by the mercy in him responded. It says, but God, rich in mercy, 
God is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he has loved us. But God, being rich in mercy and because of his great love, this love that he has loved us with, even when we were dead in our transgressions, even when our current condition was death, even when we were dead in our transgressions, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you are saved. God raised us and made us alive together with Christ. He didn't limit his view of us based on our current condition. He saw our future position and he sent Christ. And through Christ, we are saved. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus to demonstrate in the coming ages the surpassing wealth of his grace and kindness. God is rich in mercy and he is wealthy in grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, we, you and I, are saved through faith. And this is not from ourselves. It's not something we did in our own. It was the gift of God. And it's not from works. We can't boast about it. For we are his workmanship, having been created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared beforehand so we may do them. See, God literally sent his son to walk with us in our pain. God literally sent the price that needed to be paid for our salvation to walk with us in our pain. Hebrews 4, 14 says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession, our confession of our faith. Let us hold tightly to that. For we do not have a high priest incapable of sympathizing with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet without sin. God literally sent Jesus Christ to walk with us in our pain. He, he came and he walked with us, so now he can sympathize with us in our weaknesses. He was tempted in every way that we would be tempted. He did it perfectly Therefore, because God sent Jesus Christ to walk with us in our pain, let us then confidently approach the throne of grace to receive mercy and find grace whenever we need help. God wants us to receive mercy, and he wants us to give mercy. What does that mean for us? Luke chapter 6, verse 36 says, Be merciful just as your heavenly Father is merciful. Can't be any clearer than that, right? Be merciful just as your heavenly Father is merciful. Ephesians 2.10, what does this mean for us? We are his workmanship, having been created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared beforehand so that we may do them. That is why we were created. God had good works in mind for us to do before we were even breathing That's what it means to be merciful. See, we have, to, we, have to, we have to get a change in perspective. We have to get God's eyes for people and see all of humanity the same way that God saw us. We have to get God's eyes, God's way of looking at all of humanity and see them the way that God saw us. We need God's merciful eyes. He, he saw us in our hopeless state and being lost. He saw us as slaves. He saw us oppressed by the manipulation of this world. He saw us as sheep without a shepherd. He saw us stained with sin and clothed in death. But that's not all he saw. God did not only see our current condition. He was not deterred by our current condition. He saw our future position. This is how we need to learn to see people, that we don't limit them by their current condition. We see their future position in God. He did not see our present disastrous state alone. He was not limited by our present disastrous state. Instead, he saw our potential. He saw what he desired for us, and what he had in mind when he created us. That is how God saw us. He, he saw us for what we could be even when we couldn't see it for ourselves. This is how God sees us. 
He had hope for us when we had none for ourselves. He saw freedom for us when all we could see for ourselves were changed. He, he had a new robe where he wanted to wrap us in his own righteousness when all anyone around us could see and smell was the stench of our own sin. He, he saw the crown of righteousness that he had already picked out for us when all we wore was the crown of our own, sh- our own sin and shame. And while we were all alone, sheep without a shepherd, just hoping that tonight would not be the night where we're devoured by the wolves, he saw us coming into his safekeeping and finding green pastures. God uh, did not only see our current condition. In fact, you might say that God is an as-is God, right? We've been working to buy a house for almost three years now. It's Grandpa's old farmhouse. We're buying it as is. It's an old farmhouse. That means whatever the problems are that are with this house become our responsibility when we sign on the line. The seller has no responsibility once we sign. They don't have to make anything right. We, we have the full responsibility. In fact, a lot of people won't even consider buying a house that's as is because they're, they're assumed, right? They, they assume that there's something wrong with it. They're worried about what they might find. There might be foundation problems, plumbing problems, electrical problems, might not have insulation, probably asbestos in the house. You know, you never know. There's probably a lot of problems. I'm not going to buy an as-is house. And if something, or if someone is listing their house in that way, you probably know that they know that there are problems that they don't want to address. But that's not how God works. God is not an as-is God. He is, but he's not. He will buy you as you are. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20 says that we were bought with a price, that, that God paid for us with his son's life, that, that we were bought. God bought us as we are, but he doesn't just see us by what we are. God will buy you and I as we are, but the price that he paid for us also happens to be the image of our future condition. God will buy each and every one of us in our current state, but that price, that price that he paid for us also happens to be the image of our future position. I want to say that again because I'm not sure we're getting that yet because God bought us like we were in our own present state, our own messed up, defunct state where we could not possibly please God in our own sin, in our present condition, our current condition, had nothing to glorify God in it, and yet with the life of his son, he paid the price that also happens to be the image of our future position with him. By paying for us with the life of his son, Jesus Christ, he shows us how much we're worth. But it doesn't stop there. He doesn't just show us what we're worth. He shows us in that image what we're becoming. He's showing us you might be like this right now. This might be your as-is condition, but you're not going to stay there. You're going to become like my son. Everything in life might be functioning out of order and in chaos, but God loved us enough not only to redeem us from our own sin, but to bring us an example to live and to show us how and who we would be. Jesus came and walked with us in our pain. He literally walked with us in our pain and showed us the image of what we should become. 1 John chapter 4, 11 and 12 says, Dear friends, since God so loved us, since God in this way loved us, since God loved us in this way, since this is what God's love for us looked like, we also ought to love one another in this way. And I love this verse that that no one has ever seen God. Verse 12. But if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. If we love one another in this way, if this is what our love looks like, the love that we have received, if we love one another in the same way that we have received this love, with the same kind of love, then the world can actually see glimpses of God in the way that we love. That the way that we love in this radical, crazy kind of a love 
where we look beyond people's current condition to see their future position, when we love people in that way, they start to see glimpses of God through the body of Christ. It's like we talked about last week and we saw in the video, every single person is made in God's image. Every single human on this planet is made in God's image. That means they are filled with God's potential. Maybe we just need to see them differently. Maybe we just need to look at them differently. And when God puts people on our path, when God brings people to us on our path as we're walking from Jerusalem to Jericho, as we're going from home to work, as we're going from our desk to to the water cooler, as we're going from our desk to lunch, as we're going from, from lunch back to work, as we're sitting down and having lunch, as we're going out and doing things as a family, as we're out buying groceries, as we're going to school and living our lives for Christ in the places where God has put us, as we go out and as we live our lives, we need to see that these are actually divine appointments where God has put these people here for us to love for this moment in time. Will we love mercy? To end, we go back to where we begin. Why, why should we have this kind of compassion? Why should we, from a desire in our hearts, walk with people in their pain, even if it costs us greatly? Because that is exactly what God did for us in Jesus. From the love that God has for us, he sent his son Jesus to walk with us in our pain, even though the cost was extreme. Are we willing to be merciful, compassionate people? Are we looking at the question, who is my neighbor, and putting the focus on ourselves and looking at everything from our own perspective? Or are we asking ourselves the question, am I a good neighbor? Just a few minutes, we're going to sing this song. It says, we are the change. We're the change that the world is waiting for. We are the change that the world is anticipating. The world is longing for this. This is what the Bible teaches us, that the, that the world is longing for things to be made right. And, and we are those people who have been made right. And the world is anticipating and waiting for us, that, that people, to change the world. This is what the world is longing for. We have to stand up at such a time as this. And in that song, we're going to sing this phrase that mercy is alive. And I want to ask a question that not only as we finish up our time together, but as we sing that song soon and as we go out the doors, can we ask this question, can it be said of me that mercy is alive in my life? Is mercy alive, not just an intellectual idea, but is mercy actually living in me? Because if Christ is in us, then mercy should be alive in us, and mercy should change how we approach and look at everything, both from our relationships with our family, our relationships with other brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, and our relationships with those who don't believe as they walk in their pain. If mercy is alive in us because of what Christ did for us through the resurrection of the eternal Son, if mercy is alive in us, then it should look a certain way. Can it be said of us that mercy is alive? Let's stand together. I'm going to ask if you bow your heads and close your eyes. There are several characters in this story that Jesus shared. There's the one who had been beaten, left for dead on the side of the road. There's the priest and the Levite who knew the right, knew the good they should have done, but they didn't do it. And there's the Samaritan who did what was right. If you're here this morning and you would say, yeah, I'm, I'm the one who's been beaten and robbed. I'm the one who's been left for dead on the side of the road and I need, I need some mercy and I, I need some compassion. I need, I need someone to walk with me in my pain. If you would say that that is you, that's who you are this morning with everyone's head bowed and eyes closed, would you just raise your hand?
Yeah, a couple of hands. If you're here this morning and you'd say, up, up until now I've kind of been living the life of a priest and a Levite. I, I've known what I should be doing, but I would rather just do the things that are better for me, that are easier for me. If you would say that that's you and you want God to change that in you, would you raise your hand this morning and I want to pray for you? Yeah. You can put your hands down. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your great mercy. Not just your great grace, but your great mercy. I thank you that you sent your son to walk with us in our pain, that, that you and the presence of your son Jesus Christ, that God himself came and walked among those who were broken, those who had been robbed by sin, those who had been beaten down by death and left for dead, that you came and walked with us in our pain. I thank you that that is the truth of who our God is, that that is not just an intellectual truth that we know, but that we can know that truth down deep in our hearts. And I pray, Father, that for all of us, wherever we are this morning, that you stir that truth deep into us today. For those who are here who are saying that they feel like they've been left for dead, I pray, Father, that this morning not only would they find you, but that they would find good neighbors. I pray that you would stir us up to be their good neighbors. I pray that you would stir in us right now in this moment to, to want to be a good neighbor, to, to do whatever we can to help And not to just throw money at a cause, but to actually be willing to get our hands dirty with helping in the cause. Father, I pray right now that those who are feeling this way, that they would find your peace, your eternal peace, that they would find your love, that they would not just know your love in their minds, but that they would feel your love in their hearts. Father, I pray right now that wave after wave of your love would crash over them, that they would feel your love being poured out on them in abundance, a love they cannot explain, a love they cannot understand. They just know in the pit of who they are that they are loved by the eternal God who made them. Father, encourage them in this moment. Help them to see that they have purpose, that their life is not only valuable, but that you created them for a purpose, that you created them to do things before they took their first breath, you had something in mind for them and helped them to see beyond their present state to their future state with you how you want them to live. And I pray, Father, in your abundant ways that you meet their needs, that you open their eyes to be able to see you providing for them from the left and the right in ways they cannot explain but can only give you the praise for that they see you moving in their lives, doing things to show them their God is merciful. For those of us who raised our hands and maybe some who didn't, I pray, Father, for those of us who might be struggling to be merciful, who, who are looking at a situation and, and, and deciding, who are casting judgment based on the present state, how things look from the outside, that, that we may, may be deciding it's just not worth our time to help. I pray, Father, that, that you would change our heart, not just our mind, change our mind too, but, Father, deeper than that, change our hearts so that we would actually feel compassion, that our hearts would feel and be filled with compassion for those who are struggling and in pain, and that as we see them, as they come across our path, as you lead our paths, as you guide us down the right path, and, and you lead us where you want us to go, that we would actually come across them and be moved and stirred to respond in whatever way you give us to do. And I pray, Father, like the Samaritan, that you would help us as your people here, your body of Christ, at this church, that you would stir in us to be the kind of people that say, whatever the cost, whatever the cost Whatever it is that, that God shows me to do, whatever it is that God gives me to do to show mercy, whether it's for someone who's down and out or someone who doesn't realize that they're down and out, they think they have everything, but they still need God's mercy and his grace, I pray, Father, that you would give us the mentality of whatever the cost, 
Whatever the cost, help us to be people who, who are willing to show mercy no matter what the cost, that there is nothing that we are limited by on this physical earth that would keep us from being the merciful people that you've called us to be, but that we would just say, whatever the cost, we'll be there to show mercy and compassion. I pray, Father, that we would be that kind of people here, that kind of body of Christ here at this church. Let that be a marker that defines us as your people at this church. In Jesus' name I pray, 